You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The following is an Airwaves Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Nick. I'm the host of Nikolai's Kitchen, and I'm also the host of the annual live stream for The Cure. Livestream for the Cure is a charity event where we raise money with content creators and podcast partners from around the world for the Cancer Research Institute, a wonderful nonprofit researching cancer immunotherapy, training the body's immune system to fight all forms of cancer. This is a mission and a future that I truly believe in. And myself and my team worked tirelessly over the past five years to raise over $50,000 for this cause. This year, we're aiming for our biggest single goal to date of $20,000, and we cannot do it without your help. Please join us for the event May 19th through the 21st, starting at 9 a.m. Eastern for 45 hours of content from people all over the world. Together, we can bring hope for a future immune to cancer. The more eyes we reach, the more dollars we raise. Please help us in making this goal a reality. Together, we can make a difference. While the phrase midlife crisis wasn't coined until 1965, for rather a lot longer, people have recognized a shift in behavior in gentlemen of a certain age. They might impulsively leave their job, cash out their 401k to buy a sports car or motorcycle, and the cliche, of course, having an affair. All of that seems reasonable, though, compared to the actions of one one percenter who left his wife and children and became a pirate. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. This is a rare episode indeed, my beautiful brainiac. It's almost topical. Outside of a few holidays and the start of the COVID pandemic, rare is a Your Brain on Facts tied to current events. Evergreen content, me. But there is a little something in popular culture right now that has absorbed and dissolved my entire consciousness. There is no moxie, only an unfathomable obsession with our flag means death. I won't gas on about it here, but a comedy about Blackbeard and his good friend, a real-life aristocrat who ditched his family to be a pirate, by and starring Taika Waititi, could not possibly be bad. And all this thinking about pirates has made me realize I've hardly said a word about piracy in nearly 200 episodes, more than 100 hours of material, plus the Your Brain on Facts book, and the bonus minis at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. One short-ish paragraph about how the UK West Country accent came to be the default pirate speak way back in episode 73 for the last time. So today, I'm here to correct that oversight, starting with my favorite kind of correcting, correcting historical misapprehensions. Let's lay the groundwork for a little bit of pirate reality. Piracy, of course, was not confined to what we call the age of sail. It's existed as long as people have moved goods on ships and continues right up to the modern day. Look at me. I am the captain now. Most of what you think of when you think of pirates, most of what you've seen and read and watched your entire life, is the fault of Robert Louis Stevenson and his novel Treasure Island, with an assist from Walt Disney. The novel was a hit when it came out in 1883, engraving Stevenson's version of pirates into the public consciousness, 
and the 1950 Disney movie, Where the Accent Comes In, reignited the fandom flames and the market value of pirates as a subject. More books and comic books were written, movies were made, almost always copying something, usually many things, that could be traced right back to Stevenson. It's what I refer to in the Your Brain on Facts book as cemented apocrypha. Let's run through a bunch of the easy ones real quick. Peg legs and eye patches. Life in the age of sail was hazardous enough, let alone being a sailor whose job involves cannon fire and close weapons combat. And definitely people were bobbing around without a limb or an eye. If they survived losing said limb or eye, of course. Remember what doctor-quality healthcare was like in, say, the 17th century. If you're out at sea, a place constantly moving with a finite amount of fresh water and no concept of hygiene, and find yourself at the last desperate step of amputation before your incipient death by septicemia, your surgeon will just as likely also be the cook. After all, knives are knives, meat's meat. If you don't lose your life, you will lose your job. Galleons, sloops, and schooners aren't exactly handicap accessible, and piracy isn't a job that can make reasonable accommodations. You're not completely SOL, though. On a lot of pirate ships, you're actually entitled to a pension. We'll wait a moment for most American listeners to chuckle sardonically and shake our collective heads. More about pirate compensation and benefits in a bit. As for eye patches, any Mythbusters fan will tell you that that could have been used as a handy tool. You keep one eye covered at all times, and it will never adjust to the light of day. If you have to go below decks, where there are precious few and poor light sources, you swap it over to cover your daytime eye and go about with your nighttime eye. Nighttime, daytime. Nighttime, daytime. God help you if you're down there a while, though, and have to emerge into the noonday sun, because that's going to suck. Like ten times worse than going to the bathroom in the middle of the night. If you're picturing a pirate ship as a giant craft looming over merchant ships like a school bully, prepare to be disabused. Big ships are intimidating, but they're also slow and less maneuverable. Small ships can also go into more shallow water than a larger craft. So if your little pirate sloop is being chased by a Portuguese man-of-war, the ship, not the jellyfish creature, you can hug the coast, even dart among the reefs and rocks, to get away to live to thieve another day. The pirates we see in movies tend to be middle-aged men, or at least guys in their 30s, guys with a lot of years behind them. Sure, there were some road dogs, but most pirates were probably in their 20s. Turning to piracy is a young man's game. They're fit enough for the work and tethered by fewer attachments and responsibilities like wives. One study, looking at records from 1716 to 1726, estimates that only about 4% of pirates were married, at least married to women back home. More on that later, too. Life on a pirate ship looked like the hijinks that the robo-people are up to in the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, right? Like a Dothraki wedding every day. Well, they might be pillagers and burners, but they lived in a society. There were rules, conventions, actual written laws about how pirates were to conduct themselves. 
Some captains banned their crew from gambling, smoking, and even excessive drinking, which is probably the least piratey thing you've ever heard. Now, those men who we now know were in their 20s were actually a little less homogenous than they're usually pictured. A little less like homogenized milk, if you take my meaning. Many pirate crews included people from the Near East and Africa, both directly from their homeland and those who had escaped chattel slavery. It's estimated that at one point, 60% of Blackbeard's crew was black. They were not as egalitarian as all that when it came to gender, though. Yes, Mary Reed and Anne Bonny and Zhang Yi. I know, there were female pirates and they deserve their own coverage. But statistically, they were outliers. Sailors really didn't want women aboard, to the point that it was spelled out in some captain's codes. If any man shall be found seducing a woman and carrying her to sea in disguise, he shall suffer death. Women were thought to be bad luck on ships. Sailors, even more than actors and athletes combined, are a superstitious lot. I could do a whole episode just on that. Shout out if you want an episode on different groups of people's superstitions. You can let me know at Facebook and Instagram, Your Brain on Facts, Twitter, Brain on Facts Pod, TikTok, Moxie Labouche, or just email yourbrainonfacts at gmail.com. Oh yeah, the pirate code. I keep dropping it in there like it's just assumed. As we all remember from the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, and hopefully a little bit of independent scholarship besides, pirates did have their own system of laws, usually called Articles of Agreement, which applied more on a ship-to-ship basis or a single fleet rather than every pirate everywhere. Remember, you've got captains and crews from different nations with different agendas, goals, and enemies. Only certain things were considered rules for all pirates, such as, He that shall desert the ship or his quarters in the time of battle shall be punished by death or marooning. We got no time for trifling. The pirate code was popularized by the early buccaneers, which we use as a synonym for pirate, but which refers to the semi-lawful sailors and soldiers who harassed Spanish ships and ports in the Caribbean Sea in the 17th century specifically. Every sailor had to sign their name to the rules of the particular ship they wanted to work on, essentially agreeing to the terms of service. The contract codified things like the voting methods, codes of conduct, punishment for violations, distribution of pay, workers' compensation, and others. Sailors also swore an oath of allegiance and honor, with one hand on a Bible, part of the ship, or a much more metal option like a cannon, sword, or human skull if you had one of those lying around. Not every man was there voluntarily, though. If you had skills that a ship needed, you might find yourself press-ganged into service and forced to sign the articles. This, if nothing else, did create a certain plausible deniability or something akin to a conscientious objector status. So some pirates actually asked to be forced to sign so that they could claim innocence if they were caught. The articles were then posted in a prominent place so everyone would remember the expectations on them. In my mind, it looks a little less like a Wild West wanted poster mixed with Martin Luther than it does the obligatory Department of Labor workers' compensation poster in the break room of every retail job I ever held. 
these men who lived under the Articles of Agreement were not murderous sociopaths all hours of the day. Dead men can't spend money. So pirates fought as often and as hard as they absolutely had to. The two biggest expenses on a pirate ship were personnel and repairs. So you really wanted to manage the amount of cannonballs coming your way at any given time. Pirates prefer to let their reputations precede them, what we call today brand recognition, encouraging their targets to give up with minimal or no fight. They'd know you at a distance by your flag. Yes, the Jolly Roger, the classic skull and crossbones design, was used, but by so many captains that it wasn't really good for branding. A pirate flag was as important as a brand logo is now, like Blackbeard's skeleton stabbing a heart with a spear, clearly recovering from a bad breakup, or Bartholomew Roberts' flag featuring himself having a drink with death. Here's something to ponder. The most famous pirates weren't the best ones. They were the best that got caught. Their trials made their crimes public record. The real best pirates have probably been lost to history forever because they were just that good. Some of the best people I know, though, are the people who take the time to leave reviews for the podcast and the Your Brain on Facts book, like this one from over at Goodreads from Christian Sterner. I first came across the podcast as I was driving across the country, California to South Carolina. I listened to every episode. I obviously had to buy the book after I ran through the podcasts. And again, anybody who can listen to the audio quality of the original episodes, thank you and I'm sorry. It's been five months, regrettably, before I could even write a review of the book because I was in college after the military. Good on you. What I can tell you is this book will give you a direct look at facts, regardless of bias, with a plethora of sources. If you came from her podcast, her voice resonates in the book, and you will have the same experience as if her iconic voice were reading to you personally. Thank you so much, Christian. You can also find a really great one-star review for the book on our Tee Public store. The Russian warship Go F Yourself shirts, raising money for the Ukraine Red Cross at yourbrainonfacts.com slash merch. All the money that I get from the shirts and that much again of my own money goes to the Red Cross to help the people of Ukraine. Because as long as the war is on, the fundraising t-shirts are on. And if you're in a helping mood, it's nearly time for live stream for the cure. A slew of your favorite podcasters stream all weekend to raise money for cancer research. And this year, not only do I get to do a segment, I'm hosting a quiz show. So tune in to see how vindictive Moxie feels at 9 a.m. on a Saturday. The answer is very. And now a word from our sponsors. Edgewater Hospital was once Chicago's finest until a new owner took over in the 1990s. There were some serious fraudulent things going on. There are some people there putting in the hospital that aren't sick that have never been sick. They were preying upon elderly, frail, poor people. The insurance fraud scheme turned the hospital into a butcher shop. People had these incredibly complicated invasive procedures done to them inside. It's tragic what happened. The complete series of If the Walls Could Talk is now available. Over the past four years, 
People have told me they listen to your brain on facts to relax or even to go to sleep. To those people, I say, you've got to check out the podcast, Calm History. Each episode is narrated in a calm voice to help you relax while you travel back in time. Plus, there are Quiz Quest episodes full of trivia questions. Just search your podcast player for Calm History or visit silkpodcasts.com. That's silk like the fabric, podcasts plural, silkpodcasts.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. That being said, surrendering was still in your best interest if your ship has been boarded. Making a pirate's life difficult is a roundabout way of making your own life much shorter, the outcome much more tortury and much less walking the plank, since that is 97% fiction. Keelhaul was the order of the day, i.e. being tied to a rope and dragged under the ship. On the other hand, being a helpful little soul and telling them where the loot is will probably win you mercy and even a job offer. You're a sailor who's clever enough to stay alive. It's really all they're looking for on a resume. So say you decide to sign on with the pirates, both metaphorically and literally, and now you answer only to your captain, the supreme authority over your life, the last word in what you do and what happens to you, right? Well, not to cut the peg legs out from under any legendary pirates, but the captain wasn't an unquestioned dictator. Enter the quartermaster, a position as important as captain that seemingly no one thinks is interesting enough to include in any media, which I think is a damn shame. There's a lot you could do with that power dynamic in a story, especially if the two had, say, some kind of messed up codependent relationship. Is anyone a screenwriter, by the way? Just asking for a friend. The quartermaster maintained order, managed rations and resources, settled disputes, and most critically, was in charge of divvying up the loot, 
which required thorough record-keeping. He also handled minor discretions and punishments, though especially felonious offenses had to be overseen by a council of crew members. He was really like a co-captain, leading boarding parties and taking command of ships that the actual captain planned to keep. So why do we never hear about this guy? It would be like leaving Commander Riker out of Star Trek The Next Generation, both beard and no-beard versions. As a crewman on a pirate ship, you're paid a share or partial share of the stolen booty, with the exception of those on the ship belonging to Steed Bonnet, the gentleman pirate, who's the reason I started this script in the first place and is still at least another page down or so. He paid his crew a salary, perhaps conscious of the fact that he was a really bad pirate and there wasn't going to be much fabulous booty to go around. The captain got two shares. It's good to be the king. The quartermaster got one and a half when he really deserved to. The ship's surgeon, if they had one, the bosun, which is annoyingly spelled B-O-A-T-S-W-A-I-N, and the carpenter, the guy very importantly responsible for fixing cannon holes in the hull, got one and a quarter. The carpenter was another crewmate who could be tasked with doctor duties, mostly the choppy-offy stuff. The rest of the crew get an even share, though there were a few people, like the cabin boy, who'd get a lesser amount. Shares came out of the net, not the gross. First, the quartermaster has to subtract for injuries to be compensated, repairs to be made, and supplies to be replenished. Then you get paid. Still, that was a much better deal than sailing for, say, the British Empire, where the captains and officers were paid handsomely and the crew were paid an insulting pittance, since they were often conscripted, tricked into recruiting, or had no other options in life. Those lads may labor for an entire year to earn what you'll get in one good score. And you can walk away from the pirate ship the next time you reach land. Good luck trying that with the British Navy. The quartermaster was an elected post. You know who else was elected? The captain. Yeah, the crew could vote out their captain. And if they followed the articles that they agreed to, it would be democracy, not mutiny. There was one exception. The captain couldn't be replaced while the ship was engaged in a battle. You had to, I guess, give him the chance to see it through or at least keep his mind free of inter-office politics long enough to focus on the task at hand. You may owe fealty to one other person on your ship, your metalote. During the golden age of piracy, some pirates engaged in metalotage, a form of civil union. Sometimes these arrangements were purely financial, but often they were affectionate, romantic, and or sexual. Metalletage developed in an environment where crewmates often knew each other more intimately than the wives and children they'd left behind. Regardless of the nature of each relationship, pirates took the bonds of metalletage very seriously. As far as historians can tell, metalletage began in the 1600s. The word derives from the French metalote, which means sailor or seaman, or a fish stew with wine, at least when I looked it up. There's a good chance that matey likely also derives from metalotope. Think about that next time you're looking at the marshmallow matey's knockoff breakfast cereal in a bag. It's believed that metalotage began as a purely economic consideration, 
like a, a tontine of two. When one of the pair dies, the other gets the bulk of whatever they leave behind, after sending along any money to family back home. Other forms of metallotage were built around passengers or sailors trading sexual favors for food, security, or as a form of payment against outstanding debts. If your partner held rank, you could find yourself in a very advantageous position indeed, especially if you were on the younger side. Young metalotes explicitly traded sex for stability, safety, advancement, and yeah, sometimes just money. There are parallels to the pederasty of ancient Greece, but with a lot less bathing and a lot more picking weevils out of biscuits and being forced to drink your own urine when the water runs out, even though that will definitely only make things worse. Privateer commander George Shelvach was in a metallotage with the ship's cabin boy, who rocketed up the ranks to first mate, a job he was completely unqualified for. The crew groused that, the boy gave us all a kind of emulation, wondering what rare qualifications Shelvok could discover in a fellow who but a few days ago rinsed our glasses and filled us our wine. It's all about who you know and what you do, or vice versa. While not specifically mentioned in any written pirate code we know of, metallotage was common enough that most captains honored them. They manifested in many different ways, but among pirates in the Caribbean in the 18th century, it generally denoted a sexual relationship. Even Captain Robert Culliford, the English pirate who defied Captain Kidd, engaged in metallotage. A register from Calendar of State Papers, Colonial Series, records a John Swan who was known as, quote, great consort of Culliford's who lives with him. I think we can read between the lines there. Clearly, a relationship greater than economic convenience had developed between the two sailors. Metallotage, like any relationship, could be threatened by jealousy and entanglements over money or sex. And, like other relationships, they could be founded on or fueled by real passion for one's partner. Kind of like the sacred band of Thebes. There was an incident under Captain Bartholomew Roberts where a sailor insulted the captain and Roberts stabbed him with a sword, killing him stone dead. When the sailor's matelote, Jones, heard what happened, he went after the captain, screaming in Roberts' face. Roberts took that in similar stride and stabbed Jones as well. Injured but not incapacitated and roaring with holy fire, Jones threw Roberts over a cannon and beat him soundly, according to one account. Ultimately, though, Jones lost the fight and was sentenced to receive two lashes from every other sailor on the boat. That summary was better than the last four Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Don't at me. You know I'm right. If you're thinking, this is cool, pirates were really progressive and inclusive, you better pump the brakes. Historians today generally believe that rates of homosexuality likely mirrored what was found in the population at large. Records on metallotage specifically are few and far between, so it's impossible to quantify how common the relationship was. Homosexuality existed, obviously, but it wasn't accepted as the norm on ship or off. 
On board, it was a bit more like the custom of the sea. That's the polite euphemism for shipwrecked sailors committing cannibalism. Or to borrow a phrase from my Navy husband, it's not gay if you're underway. Still, it would be better than being on land where you'd find yourself jailed or killed for being gay. Assuming, of course, you weren't in the top tier of society who can pay to make their troubles go away and carry on with their unkept secret. Some folks were more against pirate same-sex unions than others, though. The governor of Tortuga, a hotspot for pirates, wrote to the mother country France asking the king to send him, and bet you can't guess before I say it, 2,000 prostitutes in hopes that the presence of more women would staunch the prevalence of metallotage. The plan backfired, however, when some of the pirates started marrying the sex workers and upgraded their metallotage to a polyamorous threesome. Ultimately, though, whether their relationships were romantic or platonic, metallotage partnerships gave pirates a modicum of safety as they navigated a life of crime on the high seas. And if you're thinking, that's not how pirates were, they were manly dude bros. Well, I can cite my sources, and you can die mad about it. Okay, crew, that's enough story time for today. Or as I usually say, and that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. We'll pick up next week with the real adventures of Steed Bonnet and Blackbeard, the realities of scurvy and how incredibly long it took science to work it out, and any other amazing things I come across in the week. Got an amazing pirate fact no one talks about? Send it on over, yourbrainonfacts at gmail.com. This podcast is part of the Airwaves Media Network, along with such other shows as While Black, Who Arted, and When Things Go Wrong. Learn all about the shows at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. Oh, and for my fellow Our Flag Means Death fanatics... The show is set in 1717. Blackbeard dies in 1718, historically speaking. I know it's not super historical, but what I'm saying is it doesn't look good for season two. But I don't care. I don't care if they kill Blackbeard in the middle of season two. I just need to know what Ed was thinking on the dock and what Steed was thinking about what Ed must be thinking. As long as I get those questions answered, I'm good. The only thing in my head is gay pirates. I love it so much. Why are you still listening? It's getting weird. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.